Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's the week ending Friday the 17th of November. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. Rishi Sunak has said he will introduce emergency legislation to rescue his plan to send some asylum seekers to Rwanda after the policy was ruled unlawful by the UK's highest court. I will not allow a foreign court to block these flights. Former British Prime Minister David Cameron has held talks with President Zelensky in Kyiv on his first official trip as Foreign Secretary. Fears continue to mount of a possible volcanic eruption in Iceland. Cracks in roads have opened up, steam pouring out of the ground. You really feel the town could be destroyed? Yeah, I believe so. I'm joined by a great gang of Tortoise editors, Jess Winch. I can't believe it's the end of the week. It's felt like a week that just went on and on, at least in news terms, and on. How was yours? It was good, thank you. (laughs) Jeevan Vasagar. Hi, James. Good to see you. Very good. And from Westminster, trapped in that circus... I can't work out, Cat Nealon, whether or not it's been Ghost Train, Dodgems, or just the Wurlitzer that makes you slightly queasy. But in one form or other, it has been a political circus this week. How did the David Cameron appointment go down in SW1? It was interesting. I, I got more positive responses than I was expecting from people who I thought were going to be quite unimpressed. I got sort of bemusement from others, including some Brexiteers, and outright fury from red wallers who think that they're basically being thrown to the wolves but an interesting little tidbit from one of my sources saying that um, Boris Johnson remember him had been in touch uh, to complain that out of the 350 MPs that he had delivered himself personally to the current prime minister it was disappointing that Rishi Sunak wasn't able to uh, choose a foreign secretary from among them. Kat do you think given that comebacks are now back in vogue Boris Johnson himself is asking himself, asking that question. I think he's kicking himself a little bit. I think people feel as though there have been a couple of opportunities in recent weeks that perhaps he could have seized on if he was still here, but he's not. And with the new party chairman uh, said to be very much Richard Sunak's man, he's unlikely to be getting a seat anytime soon. Well, let's get into the week. The reason I felt, Jess, it was such a long week, it was... A, Certainly within British politics, there were three colossal stories, even by the time you got to Wednesday lunchtime, you know, and that's before you looked at the fact that the UK possibly wasn't the biggest venue for stories, whether or not you were US-China or you were looking at what was happening in the Middle East. Um, Let's go long story short. What are you pitching? I'd like to go back to Al-Shifa in Gaza and why the Israeli troops entering the hospital on Wednesday marks a turning point for a couple of reasons. Jeeve and yours? I'm going to talk about alfalfa. Sprouts. Sprouts. <laughs> By the way, Jeevan, can I just <laughs> say, you of... are the champion of lost causes in news. <laughs> Incredible. Have you no, seen wait. how much news is out there and this is what you're giving us? Wait till you hear it, though. <laughs> is it a winner? It'll surprise you. All right. And from the all-you-can-eat buffet of news in Westminster, Cat, what are you offering? You have to choose one. I know. I'm Well, I'm going to say Rwanda, but... The angle is Rwanda and what it tells you about the Conservative Party. All right, so well, should we start there? Just f- fill us in on, if you would, at the beginning with just what the Supreme Court's ruling on the Rwanda policy actually says. Okay, so the ruling is around the sort of 
guarantees, I suppose, that can be given by Rwanda regarding the treatment of refugees once they get there. So it is not about the overall concept of transporting asylum seekers to a third country to be processed, but it is specifically about uh, Rwanda. There are concerns regarding a deal that Rwanda has done similar to the one that the UK is trying to strike that Rwanda did with Israel, in which the the ruling noted that uh, some refugees had been consequently transported out of the country. So there was a unanimous decision which again was surprising. And just to understand, the reason the Supreme Court, as you say, unanimously blocked the policy, ruled the policy is unlawful, is because international law makes it unlawful or domestic law? Both. So there was various uh, treaties and rules that were cited, the Human Rights Act, the European Convention on Human Rights, and the UN Refugee Convention, among others, were all cited. The inclusion of all of these various uh, conventions and laws makes it much worse than people in the Home Office were expecting and much harder to to find a way around it. Because can I get to one issue in this? And by the way, you have to tell me, what is our house style on the pronunciation of Refoulement, refoulement, refoulement. What, you are what asking is, the wrong person. Refu- this refu- is a bunch <laughs> of basically reformed newspaper journalists realizing they can't pronounce can't words French. that are used in court. Jess, do you know how do you how do you say it? <laughs> that's a trick question because you know I said refoulement earlier. That's your version. And that's what's how yours, I would do you say. Think? I, really, I don't know, but I really like hearing you say refoulement. In the the manner of a Bourbon king. (laughs) Thank you very much. All words in you should be pronounced as as though you're ordering in a restaurant. Um, But but Kat, the point is, this word, let's say refoulement. Refoulement. Let's say that's how we pronounce it. I think defense the closest to it. Is it? Refoulement. Okay, (laughs) refoulement. All right. Let's say we call it refoulement. But basically it means that... When you get sent to a third country, that third country isn't going to send back send you back to the country that you came from, and you are getting, your your security is in danger as a result. That, that's what it is, right? Exactly. Yes, and there there are they're not able to guarantee that that would be the case with Rwanda. But Kat, isn't this whole small boats thing a bait and switch? In that, you know, legal legal migration hit the highest level of 600,000 plus. And as much as Rishi Sunak may want to fight the election on this issue of asylum seekers, if you're Keir Starmer, you don't. I don't think Rishi Sunak wants to fight it on this issue. I think it's um, been a sort of monster of his own making, much like <laughs> the former <laughs> Home Secretary in some respects, that, that it was is a problem that kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, Migration had lost salience politically and all of a sudden it's ratcheted up into a sort of top five issue that people talk about now where they weren't really talking about it before. Jess? Well, it's two points. One is that even within small boat crossings, if you're looking at trying to solve the problem, I'm not sure that the Rwanda policy was ever going to do that because 45,000 people crossed in small boats in 2022. And Even at the beginning of when the Rwanda policy was announced, it was only ever going to process, I think, around 500 people a year. 
So this was never going to be the answer, even to the small boat crossings. The big argument for it was that it would be a deterrent policy, that this would stop people trying to cross in the first place. But I don't think there's ever been a huge amount of evidence showing that it would have a deterrent effect. And we looked at this in the Tortoise newsletter this week and found that actually the whole idea that border controls reduce migration is, is, is in some cases a bit of a myth. It can, in fact, have the opposite effect because they can incentivize preemptive migration out of a fear that the restrictions are going to get even tighter in future. So I think just arguing for a policy like this on the basis that it's deterrent was, was never a particularly strong one. Isn't there a really difficult and structural issue in government here that's not just political, not just parliamentary, but actually in Whitehall in the Home Office? Because I was thinking back to Hashi Mohammed's investigation into all of this, Visit Rwanda, and I remember two things really clearly about it. One was he set out the whole example of what happened with Israel when they tried to do this with Rwanda and the number of Israeli asylum seekers who ended up long-term in uh, Rwanda, which was next to none. I mean, really in the single mm-hmm. figures. And I think so, that was cited in the Supreme... Not yes. our investigation, but that example was cited in the Supreme Court ruling. Rejection and and the point that Hashi went on to make was this evidence of how the Israel program failed was there for all to see, as you say, seen by the Supreme Court... But it was there for the Home Office to see at the time that they put the Rwanda policy in place. And it seems to me as though there must be Home Office officials who are saying, we cannot go around this block again. We cannot be making the case for a policy that we had proven evidence wouldn't work first time around. And now we have a Supreme Court ruling saying the evidence is on the ground in Rwanda that it doesn't work. Um, The thing that I wondered is really how can a law wave away evidence if there is evidence that the process of asylum seekers in Rwanda is problematic, as Hashi found? How can the law fix that and create a new reality? The other thing that really struck me was when Rishi Sunak talked about other countries um, also looking at similar answers to their problem. That suggested that this isn't just a British story, that migration is a global problem. Pakistan has just returned Afghan uh, refugees to uh, Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Other countries, Germany, Italy, are looking at processing asylum seekers in third countries. This is a problem that needs some kind of global fix. We're trying to pursue it in a sort of strange ad hoc way and not really solving the problem. All right, well, Kat, before we're done, I want to come back just and do it like a nod to the Cameron appointment, but also Esther McVeigh, Minister for Common Sense. Yes. We need to just think about what all that means. But we'll come back uh, once we've talked about alfalfa. Um, and forgive me, Jeevan, intrigued as I am, I'm going to go to Al Shifa Hospital next. Jess, will you just fill us in? Because, of course, at the beginning of the week, Basher talked actually a good deal about what was happening inside the hospital and to patients and doctors and the scene in the hospital, as you say, since then, there have been IDF forces in the corridors of the hospital itself. Yes. So on Wednesday, Israeli ground troops entered the Al-Shifa hospital. This was a key military objective, and they were trying to find what they said was an underground military base that was being used by Hamas underneath the hospital. The search is still ongoing. They may well find more. From what they have released so far, it it doesn't look as though they have found a huge amount. They have found weapons. But what we've seen are images of maybe around a dozen AK-47s, some other ammunition and protective vests. Uh, I haven't seen any, any evidence or any kind of verified footage of a kind of underground complex or underground tunnels that they um, that Israel believed was there. 
And I think that's what makes this a pivotal moment this week because Israel's under pressure now to justify why it went into a hospital. And it's if it if it can't bring global opinion on side, I think there's going to be an increasing amount of pressure on Israel to rethink how it is conducting this war. And the second point to make is that I think if you zoom out from this hospital, you look at Gaza City, and at this point, it is nearly empty of people. It feels as though at this point in taking the hospital, and on Thursday morning, the Israeli military said they had also taken control of the port in Gaza as well, that they have more or less secured the northern half of the Gaza Strip, which then makes you think, okay, south, what happens next? Because you now have the territory's 2.2 million people even more concentrated in an even smaller area. And I don't doubt that Hamas fighters will have gone south with the civilian population as well. So what does Israel do next? Where does this go next? Not just militarily, but from a humanitarian perspective as well, because the amount of aid coming into the south area of Gaza is still nowhere near meeting the daily needs of the people there. They can't move north again. There's nowhere really for them to return to at this point. But isn't what you're describing the conditions for a pause? The So yesterday, the UN did finally manage to pass a Security Council resolution, which called for, I think, days-long humanitarian pauses. They didn't specify the number of days. But there is now that international support for that. The UK, Russia and the US abstained. Um, previously, the US has been has been vetoing that. And as such, that's why um, part of the reason it hasn't, they haven't been able to pass one. Chivan? Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Given the intelligence failings that, that appear to have led to the Hamas attack on Israel uh, on October the 7th, you wonder why Israel took such a gamble. They're now required to prove that Hamas had the military base they claimed they had under the hospital or risk um, all international support draining away. And as Jess points out, I think it's really interesting to note that the US uh, and UK abstained from that Security Council vote on Wednesday, showing how, showing how things are tipping. Jess, thanks for putting the lens on it that you have in the sense that it clearly is something that is going to make a difference, not just in terms of humanitarian thinking about Gaza, but military thinking and strategic thinking, and clearly the politics and diplomacy of it all. Let's take a beat and then let's go to the urgent and important story that Jeevan's bringing. Alfalfa Jeevan. So my, my, my hunch from your tone, James, is that you don't think much about alfalfa. I may be wrong about this. It's actually a point of argument in my household. <laughs> Some people want it. <laughs> Some of me doesn't. <laughs> There's an alfalfa divide. Okay. So you will, be, you will have been thinking about alfalfa if you're a commodity trader because the price of alfalfa has gone up 50% since 2021. The background to this is huge demand for protein in the developing world. Alfalfa's cattle feed basically, outside of, it seems it's used for different purposes in the Harding household, but it's primarily, it's primarily feed for, for cattle and By livestock. the way, I love that fact that the kind of shishi salad accoutrement, but here that goes more of my <laughs> uh, Bourbon king, um, actually turns out to be cattle feed in much of the rest of the world. I didn't even know that. So, so this is this is why you should care. And this this is why you should donate your alfalfa to the rest <laughs> of the world. Um, so there have been droughts in places like California, parts of Europe where where this is grown uh, for export and huge demand for it uh, to feed to feed herds of cattle in the developing world. But the story that I'm pitching is about a company called African Agriculture, which is based in the US. It's run by a Romanian entrepreneur called uh, Frank Timis, and it's grown 300 hectares of the stuff in Senegal 
using reserves of fresh water from a lake that is Senegal's only supply of fresh water. So the company's just published its business plan and says it plans to increase this dramatically. It's going to grow 20,000 hectares of alfalfa, and most of it will be for export, so 70% of export, for export to the Gulf. So the reason that I'm pitching this story is that it's a story about water scarcity. It's a story about um, who gets to use water and why. There's conflict between the company and local communities. They say they can't let their animals forage as they used to. Um, they're having to walk further for water. I should say at this point, the company says it donates some of its crops to the animals. It's now the biggest employer in the region. So there's a story about the relationship between, between the company and the communities. But really, this is a bigger story about who controls resources, um, who gets to use the water from the lake, and for what purpose. So that, but, that's but, the but reason. But what are you saying there? I don't fully understand because are you saying that Senegal shouldn't take foreign investment in a business that might create jobs, build the economy because of its water scarcity, when presumably its water scarcity problem is a climate-related one. What you then do is you consign the countries that themselves are victims of climate change to a kind of downward spiral of economics. Yeah, so I I agree and I take your point. I I think there's no question about saying that Africa needs development, that Africa needs jobs, uh, that these countries um, have a right to expand their economies and feed their people. The way that this story, the way that I'd argue this story should be reported, is in isn't how how the country's developed, whether the resources are sufficient to supply the communities and to supply this company, and that's that's the part that's interesting for me. But it's a really difficult one. I mean, I'm not saying it's. I mean, you're right. I think it's completely interesting, mm-hmm. but it's really difficult to know what you think. Then, if you're Senegal, do you say we don't want the foreign investment because it's going to utilize our scarce resources? to feed animals in the Gulf rather than at home. Is that the judgment you'd make? So I think stories where you don't know what you think are interesting ones um, <laughs> yes. and they're ones that we ought to report. I think there are kind of questions about who benefits. So if there, if there are jobs going to local people, um, if this is providing uh, food for local people, there's a strong argument for having, for having development. Um, I, I think it's much more questionable when crops are grown for export. So, so that's, the, that's the argument to have. Jess? I keep thinking of the big short and how the trader who predicted a 2008 financial crash said at the end that he was going to invest all of his attention on one commodity, which was water. And that's why I think this story is so good. I think this I think this is a resource that is going to become increasingly valuable over the coming years and that the debate and the discussion over how it should be used, how it should be managed, how it should be uh, directed and to whose benefit is an important one to have. But it's hard, isn't it? Because it's not clear whether or not the investor is part of the problem for a country like that or part of the answer. I guess the parallel uh, is Brazil, which has become an agricultural superpower, but it adds significant cost to the Amazon. So, I mean, I think there isn't a clear-cut answer of saying development's good, development's bad. It's how it's done that matters. But there is this dynamic, isn't there, that's emerging an argument between biodiversity and climate where you think they're in lockstep, but they're not because there are certain people who think, and I realize this isn't the case with alfalfa, you're not growing alfalfa to create biomass or to create you know, sustainable aviation fuels or anything like that. But there is this growing tension, isn't there, between land use that's for alternatives to fossil fuels and land use that enables either foods or uh, you know, flora and fauna. And I don't know, Jeevan, 
I know this strays a bit from this Senegal story, but how you begin to think about that, it, it's not all a clear, clear-cut climate story. Um, it's not simple. And uh, you're, you're right, James. I think um, one of the challenges with biodiversity is how difficult it is to measure who benefits, how do we measure the benefit. It's much easier to talk about carbon and say there are so many tons of, tons of carbon that are being removed from the atmosphere, much harder to talk about species that will flourish or haven't died out, you know, harder to prove these counterfactuals. All right. So fair enough. The joke's on me. That is a seriously interesting and thought-provoking story, perhaps in some ways the best story of the day in that it's the story that leaves you most uncomfortable thinking not you don't know what to think. I'm going to just do one quick return to the uh, weird and wonderful world of Westminster and to ask Kat one thing, if I might, just because listening to us, you might well think to yourself, what are these woke, liberal, middle-aged bourgeoisie sitting around worrying about climate for? What is the politics of the appointment of Esther McVeigh, minister without portfolio, around the cabinet table, uh, responsible for, quote unquote, common sense? So ministers without portfolio are not unusual. Um, They are when you often want to give someone a cabinet level job, uh, but you don't have anything for them. So Ken Clark was made a minister without portfolio. Uh, Nadim Zahawi was made a minister without portfolio. Um, Gavin Williamson was made a minister without portfolio, I believe. So there's 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 definite precedent for that type of role. Um, but the the politics around it is that Rishi Sunak sacked the most high profile right winger on Monday morning, Suella Braverman, over the phone, and he needed to give a sort of olive branch to that wing of the party, and so he has made Esther McVeigh, uh, who is a former minister, I think she was a working pension secretary. Um, the, the the minister for common sense, um, but they weren't didn't quite have the the sort of patter worked out for how to describe it when journalists were initially asking. Um, she's been referred to as a czar on wokeness. I mean, if you've even got Jacob Rees-Mogg sort of publicly criticising it as a nonsense job title, who was the minister for Brexit opportunities. I think you can kind of see how badly it has landed. And I think also this is a slight sort of, it kind of, to me, it gets to one of the problems that Rishi Sunak has, which that I think that he doesn't still really understand the party. And that is because he has only been an MP since 2015. He spent most of that time in government. He has not got a base, as we have discussed previously. And I don't think he fully understands who he's up against within the party. And this, I think, is also part of the reason why Suella Braverman has been sort of enabled and kind of allowed to sort of build her profile to as great a level as it has done, when most people would say she's maybe got a base of around 10 other MPs. Um, And it's, I think that he, and this is my opinion, but I, I kind of get this impression from others that he sees the right as one sort of homogenous blob, but it is in fact not. So you have people who are right on tax, sort of, you know, live the Trussites who want to see, you know, tax cuts and, and stimulate growth and all the rest of it. And you have people who are right on wokeness and sort of gender ideology, the sort of um, uh, Danny Kruger and Miriam Cates. Then you have the people that are right on immigration. 
um, who are the sort of a lot of the sort of red wall types, Jonathan Gullis and, and Lee Anderson. And then you also have, you know, the sort of Suella, John Hayes people who are, you know, a slightly separate group. And we've talked before about all the various different caucuses that exist within the Conservative Party. Some of them do lap over. The ERG, there's lots of people that kind of bit about into different sort of groups within the Conservative Party. But actually, there's an awful lot who don't. And there is an awful lot of rivalry and people slagging off John Hayes and slagging off Bill Cash and people who you think might be sort of fellow travellers, but actually can't stand each other. And so with Esther McVeigh's appointment, you know, sounding people out about it this week, most people sort of thought, well, she doesn't talk to us anyway. It doesn't it doesn't do anything. And we all know it's a nonsense job. More for her for taking it. I think it's quite a generous read, Kat, on Rishi Sunak, describing as someone who doesn't necessarily fully understand his party. This is what you hear about him as a man who isn't very good at politics or increasingly looks like someone who either doesn't have a real political core or who by nature just wants to please everyone and in trying to please everyone pleases no one. I guess the one thing I wanted to just ask you though is whether or not there is something more serious and more worrying in an appointment like this because it sounds silly but in essence what the Prime Minister has done is institutionalised battles over the past, if you like, the, the the history wars that are around, do you think British history is a good thing or a bad thing, that are, if you like, kind of late night TV talk show fare, but entrenching that around the cabinet table, making that a deliberate feature of next year's election. And so I wonder whether or not you think something is coming there that we should worry about. That is a very good point. I mean, almost certainly, because culture wars don't cost very much to wage, that is going to be something that the election will be fought on. We know that they are going to go hard on Starmer's past as the Director of Public Prosecutions and talk about all the times that he failed to lock baddies up. And, you know, this kind of war on woke does play well in the Red Wall. Well... That's the that's we don't know we that. don't know that actually you know that's the kind of lazy assumption that is made, um, but it's it may be that they hope that it will play better than we tried to stop the boats, but turns out it was a lot more difficult than we thought. <laughs> All right, we will I suspect be coming back to that month in month out uh, in the twelve months or so to come. Let's try and make a call on what should lead the news this week. Uh, you've got Jess's. Uh, IDF troops in the corridors of Al Shifa Hospital, uh, alfalfa investors in uh, Senegal, and the Supreme Court decision in Rwanda. Um, Jess, you go first. What would you choose if it weren't if you weren't choosing Gaza? I think the Supreme Court ruling is very important, but because of my point earlier that it's not really going to impact the bigger numbers when it comes to either illegal or legal migration. Uh, for that reason, I'm going to go for Senegal and water. Teach me a lot I didn't know. Outrageous. Unbelievable. Jeevan? Um, I think similarly, I'm, I'm very interested in the court ruling for what it says about the Tory party. But um, I feel like the IDF in Al-Shifa is, is a critical moment in the war. And I'd go for that story. Kat? Yes, I'm going with the hospital and the perhaps tipping point in the war. I think I would choose this week, notwithstanding obviously what's at stake uh, in Gaza and the humanitarian 
you know, catastrophe that that is, I think that I would lead on a Supreme Court ruling on Rwanda, not just for all the reasons that Kat laid out, but also because this feels as though it's a moment in fact versus feeling, law versus politics, and that matters. We saw it matter in the Brexit debate. We've got to make sure that we learn the lessons of that and respect the rule of law. Um, I would then go with the Al-Shifa hospital. Uh, it's not a pause. It's not a ceasefire. But it's. I think you're right, Jess. It's a really important moment in the way in which the world and potentially Israel itself begins to think about where it's got since the 7th of October. And although I was unkind and unwarranted in my skepticism about alfalfa, um, it's not a story that leads the news. Um, it's a story that uh, informs and enlightens, um, but possibly not the one that you come to the end of the day and you say, have you heard about the alfalfa investor in Senegal? I bet you you'll be talking about alfalfa in a week's time. I'm sure I will. Uh, Jeevan Vasagar, Jess Winch, Kat Nealon, thank you very much. Um, thank you uh, for listening. If you've got a view and you think we're missing the stories that matter or you think that we're getting our judgments wrong, please do message, email, drop a voicemail, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. And Kat, just to show that no good deed goes unpunished, <laughs> Uh, after the long months you spent trying to find out what Charlotte Owen, Baroness Owen of Alderley Edge, actually thinks, actually says, we're going to leave you with the sound of her making her maiden speech in the House of Lords. Finally, you're going to know what Charlotte Owen thinks, although when you listen to it, you may not learn all that much. I must also thank the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson who put a great deal of trust in me. And I will be forever grateful, not only for this, but for his kindness and encouragement. I feel immensely privileged to have worked with him and other cabinet ministers during my time at number 10. I was delighted that his commitment to delivering the referendum result, his optimism, his vision for levelling up the country and for ensuring that life chances are fairly distributed resulted in the seismic election victory of 2019. My Lords, I was born in 1993. George Michael was still at number one. And the Spice Girls were about to set in motion a wave of girl power. <laughs> Tortoise.